Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Ruel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. For centuries, science has been driven by human intellect. But for those of who have grown up mostly in the last century, the course of science has been taking a dramatic shift, the ascent of artificial intelligence. What will science look like in the future, and how will it impact us as we age? This is one of the key questions that Dr. Benjamin Lewin, the author of Inside Science, tackles in today's episode of 45 Forward. Drawing on his 25 years of experience as the founding editor of Cell, the world's leading journal in biology, Dr. Lewin will also address some provocative issues, including how traditional scientific research has been done and sometimes shaped by factors such as the pressure to publish, changes in the way science is communicated, and the shift away from hypothesis-driven science toward data-driven science. AI offers some stunning potential, Dr. Lewin notes, making it possible for scientists to get instant results from experiments that used to take years of work. On the other hand, move toward using big masses of data can be of a concern because correlations can be misleading, and such a tradition transition to big science may leave us with no individual researchers being able to see the whole picture. So now, folks, it's time to meet Dr. Benjamin Lewin. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, this is uh, science is something that has interested me since I was a kid, you know, when I was uh, studying nature study courses. And I know that a lot of people think of it in sort of a static sense, but you've got a good sense of the, 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 the span of it across the years and have a sense of a lot of the movements within uh, the fields. So, uh, first of all, I, I'm just, um, I wonder if you could, for our listeners, just tell us a little bit about your own journey. I mean, I know that you, trained as a microbiologist, but then you shifted toward covering the sciences. So how did you make that shift and why did you do that? I started out intending to be an experimental scientist. And there were two uh, two problems. One was that I wasn't actually terribly good at doing experiments. Huh. The other was that I found it was very limiting. You spent all your time doing an experiment, all your time working in the lab. Uh, I was criticized because I went off to the library to read what other people were doing. And I wasn't, you know, producing results for the greater glory of the department. But uh, for me, the purpose in being in science was to understand what was going on. And I couldn't, I reckon I just couldn't do that um, and do experiments. And Mm -hmm. so I shifted into first at um, part of Nature, the the general journal, general science journal, Nature. I shifted into becoming an editor there. And then um, I became exasperated with the way that science runs. So... The basic idea of science is that you do some work, you report it in such a way that other people can understand what you've done and reproduce it if they want to try to do so. Um, but at, the, at that time, this is now the 19, um, 19, 1970s, early 1970s, right. if, you had a, if you had a really important discovery, you only had two ways to publish it. You could write it up in full with all the details needed in the proper scientific way, but it would take you a year to get it published. And of course, somebody else might publish in that time. You might be scooped. Anything could happen. And if it's important, you want to get it out there. So the other way to do it was to publish a very short report in one of the general journals, like Nature or Science, um, which would basically say, I have made a great discovery. 
but hmm. wouldn't actually tell people enough to know whether it was really true or not. I didn't think those alternatives were actually a very satisfactory way to run science. And so I decided to start a journal which would let people publish reasonably full results very quickly. Um, you've got to remember we're talking about the 70s here, so very quickly it was three months. Right. Today it would be maybe three days. But at that, time, at that time, publishing a major paper with all the results in three months was, was revolutionary. And the journal was called Cell. It published anything in biology, and it became essentially the world's leading journal in the biological sciences. Right. Yeah. That led me into being basically, I suppose, a critic of science hmm. rather than a researcher. And that was uh, a slightly difficult position because there is no tradition in science of people being critics. You know, you can be a theatre critic, you can be an art critic without producing stuff yourself. But in science, the feeling was scientists do research. So there was a certain amount of difficulty in that, but it worked out. And actually, it's, it's a model that is now followed more widely. There are now more journals which have uh, what you might call professional editors running them, whose role is to be critics of science. Yeah. Well, I think you need that role. I think that that's you need to... to you know, take a side view of some of these things or a more global view. Um, But from someone who really understands it and someone who's experienced it and someone who, you know, has the credibility of your experience. Um, So you did that for a while. And then, um, so so now you're no longer the the editor, but it's it's still going strong, I think. Cell is still a leading journal. Right, right, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about... um, this one of the things I mentioned in the introduction that you talk about in your book, um, Inside Science, uh, which is you know the, the, one of the hot topics of today: artificial intelligence, AI, um, and a lot of it is sort of you know dramatic reporting about you know uh, Chat GPT or how it's going to affect students or self-driving cars or things like that. But talk a little bit about your view of it from a perspective of how it influences how science is done. Well, it's got great potential but it's also got some problems. Um, I think the potential for most people was really, really came, came out with some papers about two or three years ago on the subject of protein structure. Hmm. So a protein is basically a long chain made of 20 different types of subunit, and analyzing its structure has been a difficult business. You do it by a technique called X-ray crystallography. You have to make a crystal of the protein, then you have to shine X-rays at it, then you have to get a good diffraction pattern, and then you have to interpret the pattern. That's a lengthy process, and it doesn't always work because you can have difficulties making the crystal and so on. And I mean, proteins have important proteins have been analyzed sort of one by one over the years, and it's a very slow and arcane process. Along comes um, an operation in London called DeepMind, which, mm. which, which, which wrote the program um, AlphaGo which beat the world's champion in Go, I think 2010, something like that. Mm. And they, they set themselves to writing software based on artificial intelligence that would analyze protein structures. And this software basically takes the sequence of the protein and predicts its structure. And the striking thing is, first of all, it does lots of stuff very fast. Their first report, I think in 2021, analyze 700,000 proteins, you know, huge, huge number. Um, But the really, really striking thing is that whenever there was a difference between the structure that the program is called um, AlphaFold, whenever AlphaFold predicted something which was different from what the crystal structure had predicted, when they went back and checked, AlphaFold was right. 
So mm. you could not only produce protein structures much faster, it appears that you get them right. Um, they've now analyzed every known protein. Mm. So this, this is it basically put X-ray crystallographers out of business, which is, you know, an amazing turn of events. Um, the problem is that nobody, not even the people who wrote the program, understand completely how it works. They say something in, in their paper like, um, we try to work out how our program works, and this is what we how we think it works, but we're not quite sure. So here is the problem for science. The tradition in science, the, the, the very basis of science, actually, is that you publish your results as an account of how you did the work so that other people can repeat it. If you can't explain how you got to your conclusions, because the AI program is something you don't quite understand, how reliable is it? How can we trust it? I mean, so far, it's proved right every time that anybody's investigated in detail. But that doesn't mean it will prove right every time. And AI programs are subject to a phenomenon which in the trade is called hallucination. Mm. They make things up. I had, a, I had a very interesting experience of that myself with, with ChatGPT. Um, I asked ChatGPT to find me some sources for something I was working on for my latest book. And it came back with a very impressive list of sources. Authors who published on the subject, journals which have papers on the subject, titles that looked exactly what I was looking for. But when I went to check those references, none of them existed. ChatGPT had basically, if you like, um, imagined what the authors should have done had they been... <laughs> <laughs> but they haven't really done it. So I worry that if you're going to use AI for something like, let us say, medical purposes, um, you, you better have some sort of reality check, because otherwise we could do a matter of serious damage. Um, the, the surprising thing, surprising to me anyway, is that people seem to accept um, something that is done by AI more willingly than they would if a human did it. Mm. I'll give you an example. So about 10 years ago, the first photograph was taken of a black hole. It shows a sort of uh, fuzzy black area with a rather broad, very fuzzy ring of light around it. And then um, last year, uh, the people who had taken the photograph originally reanalyzed it using AI techniques. And what they got was a much tighter central black area and a much uh, sharper ring of light around it. And this is, what the, uh, this is what AI predicts for it. And no one seems to have, it, let me put it this way. If a human being, if, if a professor with all the experience of years in astrophysics said, well, I think that the, the, the center should be sharper and the ring around it should be narrower, people would laugh if they didn't actually accuse him of fraud. Because mm. an AI program has produced it, people say, okay, fine, that worries me. Yeah, I, I can see that. You know, there is this... Uh, uh, prejudicial view that somehow things produced technologically are more accurate than the human yes. mind and um I, at the same time i did find it uh, you know to your point about no one knows quite how this works to be quite astonishing and i and i remember a few months ago bill gates being interviewed um, about you know chat gpt and ai and 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 he said the same thing he, on so the 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 um interviewer says to him well what do you think of this he goes well what worries me is that nobody even the people who created know really how it works which i find kind of kind of amazing is like that we create things but we don't really know how these programs work so that to me is it's just worrisome you know that that requires at least some you know uh, input from humans to, to really look at it again. 
I asked the creator of the um, Alpha Fold program what he would do about that. Mm -hmm. He said, um, he gave a very good answer, actually. He said, basically, you have to validate it downstream. You look at Mm -hmm. the predictions of the conclusions the AI program has come to, and you see if if they hold. And if they don't hold, then you have to go back and question. Was the program wrong? Was the data you fed it wrong? Where did the error occur? Um, that's a pretty reasonable answer, but it doesn't quite satisfy the traditional criterion of science that an independent third party could go and repeat the results if they wanted to. And, you, you know, you have to worry about this a bit because um, experience says that if you take two different AI programs, when you take an AI program, you train it in two different ways, it will produce different results. So there's a bias built into it from the training you gave it when you created it. And you don't know what that bias is. That's the nature of a bias. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it, it worries me a bit that we are going to end up abandoning or at least having to soften one of the major principles that has made science as successful as it has, i.e. anybody else can reproduce the experiment in principle. Right. You talk about this uh, role of reproducibility in science, and I, I think it is important. And you say it's the absolute essence of science. But I wonder, too, if if that is somewhat being um, misshapen by um, other pressures, uh, mainly the pressure to publish, the pressure to get information out, the pressure, you know, um, the, you know, I, I've saw it in my own business in journalism when, you know, I see these um uh, results being published and i'm like really is it ready i mean is it have other people reproduced it and i think there's this fear well if we don't get it out someone's going to beat us to it there is an element of that the phrase it's not it's not that new the phrase publish or perish goes back to 1942 apparently um people are under pressure they're under pressure to publish um for multiple reasons one is um whether they get tenure at a university will depend very much on their publication record you need to get what is considered to be a good record of publications by the time you come up for tenure. Um, Whether you can get grants to carry on your research will depend very much on whether you have published what people consider to be an adequate amount of stuff. Um, That has led to people publishing shorter articles. You know, there used to be a joke about the least publishable unit, just how small could you make a paper? Um, All of that is a problem. And people are definitely under... People definitely come under real pressure. I, I had an example of that when I, I, I rejected a paper that had been submitted to sell. It, it, we hadn't handled it very well. We made a bit of a mess of it, in fact. But the author was really cross, and he phoned me up, and he said, you are a disgrace to the scientific community. I am going to have your PhD revoked. You are not fit to be in charge of a major journal, et cetera, et cetera. And I right. thought, okay, he's under some pressure. And, in fact, he was up for tenure, and it was important to him that he got the paper published. I met him a year later, and he turned out to be the nicest chap. Um, just that, but that level of pressure, sure, will lead people to publish things perhaps a little bit before they are ready. Um, it's a constant refrain that people submit papers to journals, and the referees and the editor go back to them and say, "You need more data before this is complete." Um, there is a lot of pressure there. I think once you have tenure, the pressure comes from the need to get grants, which mm. you, that that has become very competitive and much more difficult. Uh, it's definitely um, intensified, but it's not it's not a new phenomenon. Right, right. Yeah, this is um, something that I th- I think has been in you know across academia and and you know related disciplines 
uh, to get something out. And, and in my own profession, um, I think, you know, that, that has been a danger too. You know, you get stories and you say, we got to publish this story. And it's like, well, how many sources have verified this, you know, and, uh, and the standards uh, have um, diminished, I would say, you know, the, in, you know, there are even things uh, that I remember when I was, uh, you know, a young reporter, when someone said, well, I don't like what you said, but I'm going to file a lawsuit against you, Ben. And, and the, the standard was, well, when they file the lawsuit, then we'll publish it. But now just the fact that people say things, um, you know, we, we say that, that so-and-so is going to file a lawsuit. And, and that, 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 that does distort the news that in other words, that, that inadvertently, um, applies pressure, you know, it, it distorts what happens. So I think this, you know, reproducibility that, that you know, that, that a certain amount of caution is essential in your business. Sure. Things have changed. I knew a journalist on The Economist, you know, the magazine out of England. Right. And he, he said, your prestige at The Economist, this was 20 years ago, your prestige at The Economist depended on how many lawsuits you had against you. And <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be like that today. And one of my beefs about this whole situation is that the press does not do a good job of reporting science. Right. And what you have just said about people publishing stories in, in, when they're in computers, it's magnified greatly in science because they really, they, when, we, when we had something, for example, like cold fusion, the, the press went wild about it. And they, there were plenty of doubters in the scientific community. And if it had been a story in, let us say, politics, the other side would have been represented. But what came out in the press was really one-sided. It was all sort of, this is a great, great discovery. And no hint that there were people out there who did not think it was a great, great discovery. Right. And the press does a terrible job of reporting science. And I wish it were better, because I think that is a significant part of the reason why people don't understand science and right. maybe contributes to the anti-science movement that we know. Right. Yeah, good. So we're going to take a short break, Ben. Um, uh, but I want to pick up on that when we come back. So, uh, folks, we'll be talking much more with microbiologist and author Ben Loon when we come back. So don't go anywhere. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. 
Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burrows and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific. Because everyone can make money in real estate. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Dr. Benjamin Lewin, the author of Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact, and the founding editor of Cell, the world's leading journal in biology. So before the break, we were talking about some of Ben's observations about how we how we uh, report on science. And there seemed to be a couple of elements we were uh, unpacking, which is one is that um, the press doesn't do a very good job sometimes. And also that sometimes the scientists themselves don't do a good job in terms of communicating what it is that they're that they're exploring and investigating. Um, so let's talk about the first element that again we, we were talking about. And, and I had some experience myself, and as I, I was mentioning to you during the break, that uh, you know, I, as an editor, I would come across stories about uh, scientific studies done, and I would wonder. I would say, well. Okay, has this been reproduced? Is it you know uh, who did the study? How did they do it? You know what you know what are, what are some of the elements of these studies? And sometimes that just gets lost. Well, it's an interesting study. Let's just get it out there. And I think that's a problem. It is a problem. It seems like a long time ago, but when I came into science, scientists really didn't talk to the press very much. They were really reluctant to. And there was a certain amount of um, disapproval, if you like disapproval in the world of science if you were a public figure, if you talked if you talked to the press, if you publicized your work. Um, you know, Carl Sagan, who was uh, quite a good astronomer and quite and, and a great publicizer for science, never was elected to become a member of the National Academy, basically because the other members of the National Academy didn't really approve of, of his success mm. uh, in be, being, becoming a public figure. Um, and as we have moved into a sort of more, I don't know, what media conscious age, scientists are certainly talking to the press much more. The the move to that really came with the biotech revolution, when 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 biotech companies wanted to push their stuff out and they started announcing their results. And we got to a stage where with cold fusion, we really saw publication by press conference. And we saw quite a bit of that with COVID. The problem with that is that if it hasn't been peer-reviewed, um, there's no saying if, if there are going to be hidden flaws in it. And even if it has been peer-reviewed and published, um, the press really ought to do a better job of finding scientists of all opinions. You know, mm-hmm. People approve of it, people have reservations about it, and not just, not just taking it at face value. They wouldn't take anything in politics at face value. They shouldn't take anything in science at face value. Scientists as a whole don't take things at face value, or they shouldn't. If they do, they're not very good scientists. But I have to... I have to, I have to 
I have to concede your point. Scientists are to some extent now responsible because they make exaggerated claims and it is difficult for the press to resolve that. Yeah, and I think sometimes even good scientists need some um, support and perhaps guidance in terms of how to talk to the press um, and just accept some of the realities of it. I I remember talking with some people, um, trying to guide them and saying, listen, um, I'm not trying to to, uh, distort what you're saying. You just need to think about how you say it. Um, people who are, who don't know really what you're talking about. And if you speak in paragraphs, they're not going to know what to focus on. <laughs> and I know people make fun of sound bites. Um, but that in, in a way that is about, you know, how do you communicate in ways that people can grab onto it and, and, and not, uh, throw your comments out of context because they don't really understand it. So I was mentioning to you earlier about this. Um, I did think that, you know, at Sony University, where there is um, uh, their their um, school of um, communication and journalism, they have the the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, and I think that the specific goal of that uh, center is to help you know you know bring scientists in and say, well, look, this is how you could get what you want out there uh, reported on accurately. That will help, but you have to remember all this is changing, and, and quite dramatically in a way. Um, it used to be that you never published anything until you had a paper that had been through a journal, through a review process, um, and accepted and published. Mm-hmm. And now there are systems for circulating preprints, which are basically unpublished. Uh, uh, things that have not been refereed, not submitted to a journal. They circulate very widely in science. In fact, there is now even one scientific journal that will only publish um, submissions after they've been through the preprint system. I think mm. the thinking is that if enough people see it and comment on it, that will substitute for a re- conventional review process. It's an interesting thought, but you know, the world is changing for scientists. Science still publishes, scientists still publish their results in individual scientific papers. The scientific paper is something that was invented in the 19th century, really, and it fits the need of a journal that was printed and distributed. You know, mm. it's, it, it must fit within certain size constraints. Um, it's got a, it's got a, there's a definite time limit because it has to go into the journal, which has to be printed and then sent out in the mail to people and so on and so forth. With the internet and the ability to communicate things electronically almost instantly, there's really no reason why the scientific paper should, should continue to have its conventional format. Mm. There's no reason why we couldn't replace it with something like, say, a Twitter stream. You publish your observations, people perhaps add comments to it, you publish counter comments, you publish, you have a stream containing your results instead of a series of individual papers published in many, many different journals. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, really, that we've come into the electronic era and the scientific paper has moved from being published in print to being published online, but its Hmm. format hasn't changed at all. We're still publishing science in a 19th century format. And mm. for me, that's quite extraordinary that nobody has thought, hey, we should be doing things in a different, more modern way. Yeah. I, yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, and I find that, you know, when I read articles now, um, uh, newspaper articles, um, you know, people say, well, you're, you're kind of old school. You read print. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I read print, but I also read online. Mm. And one of the things I find interesting online is when I see an article, 
um, the, often there are numerous comments about the article, which actually give it a little bit more texture and, and some commentary. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So I think that whole approach, you know, to really having that that more um, accessible and immediate response to it actually contributes to the, you know, the, the stories themselves. Um, yes, it's very static, publishing a scientific paper. And I think it could become more interactive. Interesting. And I think that would make a difference in science, quite quite a significant difference. Mm -hmm. Hasn't happened and maybe, you know, it's funny. It's a funny thing for scientists who are at the forefront of innovation to, to stick on something as old-fashioned as, mm -hmm. as the format of the scientific paper. Yeah, interesting. Now, some of the other things you talk about are that have influenced how science is done. And we, we talked a little bit about the grant game, but, but patents too, uh, that can be good or not so good. Well, patents have a long tradition in chemistry, for example, of being integrated with basic research, not in biology. Um, patents are both good and bad. They're good in the sense that some of this research, some of the research would never be done if people didn't feel it could be protected by a patent. On the other hand, the needs of a patent, um, the way the way you you do work for a patent is a bit different from the way you do basic research because you have to protect your interests, um, you have to you have to publish it in a certain way in order for it to be eligible for a patent and so on. Um, I would say that on balance, patents have not been very good for biology because they have distorted the priorities as to what people would would normally do for research. Um, one of the points I try to make in this book is that trying to direct science is a mistake. Mm. That trying to say, we know what society needs, we're paying for it, basically. We know what society we know what society needs, and science should go in that direction. That is almost always a mistake because you never know where great discoveries are going to come from. And mm. some of them come from totally unexpected areas. For example, the human genome sequence project mm -hmm. um, would never have been possible without some extremely arcane work that was done in bacteria in the 1970s. That's when the enzymes that break the DNA into little bits that you can now take, take apart to sequence, that's when those enzymes are discovered. And they were discovered as part of a, a protective system in bacteria. If back then someone had said, look, this stuff in bacteria has no relevance to human health, welfare, medicine, or even other areas of science, we're not going to fund it, we wouldn't have the, we wouldn't have the human genome sequence. And in the same way, also a rather parallel process, um, another, a different uh, system in bacteria, which was discovered back in, I think, the 80s, maybe the 90s, um, appeared to have no relevance to anything. And that led, through one path and another, to the CRISPR technique for gene editing. So here are two major techniques to do with our ability to, to understand and to manipulate the human genome, which would never have been discovered, never have been worked out, if, if, we, had, if we had taken a rigorous view on what we wanted to support in science. You, you just never know. Right. I think some of this, so you, you talk about also in terms of when you, uh, you talk about scientific papers, the myth of the scientific paper, but, but some of that process, sort of the assumption that well, we publish these things and you you sort of create a narrative that, that that's a very smooth, sequential narrative, whereas you just pointed out a lot of these things happen by accident, but by you know paying paying attention to what actually happened and and what the applicability is. But a lot of it is uh, of, of 
breakthroughs seem to come through a combination of accident and intentionality. <laughs> There's a very nice saying from uh, someone who made an observation by accident and ended up with a Nobel Prize for it. He said, accidents don't happen accidentally. And he went on to explain that what he meant was, if you run a good lab and you're a great scientist and there's an accident that is significant, you will notice it. And you will go on from that to make a discovery. And if you're a, if you're a sloppy scientist or you're no good, you will just say, oh, well, didn't understand that and move on to something else. Accidents are an important part of science. Um, and that's not in any way to denigrate the process by which science normally works, which is, you know, reasonably logical, but only up to a point. So, as you say, a scientific paper presents a smooth narrative. It presents a sort of logic which says, here is a hypothesis. That hypothesis makes some predictions. We have tested those predictions. And, you know, either we find they're wrong or they're right and we go on to the next thing. And the fact is science doesn't really proceed like that at all. It's much more a matter of accidents and you're working on something. Maybe maybe you are, in fact, working to test a hypothesis. Very likely you are. But um, you will probably make some observation. You say, that's a funny observation. Don't quite understand that. And then you go and explore what that means. And it's a very higgledy-piggledy process. Not, not a straight line at all, a zigzag, ups and downs and wrong turnings. And none of that is reflected in a scientific paper. A scientific right. paper is a smooth, logical sequence. We observe this. As a result, we did that. We then observed something else. As a result, we went on to the next thing. And in fact, these things probably occurred in a completely different order. And they were all over the place. But you present it in a nice, logical way. It does serve a purpose because it is sort of easy to assimilate. and People are accustomed to assimilating it. Um, when I was at Cell, I was going on about this. And a scientist, um, I, I said, basically, a scientific paper is an exercise in spin. You are the authors, you have some data, and you want to persuade everybody of the importance of those data, and you present the results in such a way as to say, look, we have made a big discovery. And I said, what you should really do is just publish the data and let people make up their own minds. So one author took me at my word, sent me four figures, and he said, all right, here, here, here are my data. You tell me what they mean and if, if you think it's worth publishing in Cell. And I have to say, it was very difficult to work out. And mm. I could see at that point the purpose of having a scientific paper. It may be a false narrative, but it serves a purpose in that everybody else can assimilate and understand what you have done. Right. <laughs> yes. At the same time, it, it seems to be a wonderful metaphor for life. <laughs> As an example of that's the way a lot of life, you know, it, yes. it is this combination of it's not a straight line. But at some point, you need to sort of make make it straighter as we sort of sum it up and try to make sense of it. But it, it also it makes it exciting, unpredictable, and I have to say, you know, somewhat humbling. You know that yeah. that uh, you need to uh, be recognized that it's it's not with the best of intentionality can lead to incredible results, but not the ones you thought. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Um, people can people can be people are stuck sometimes in the paradigm. I tell the story in the book of, of DNA. You know, the, 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 the fact that DNA is the genetic material was proved uh, quite conclusively in 1944. People didn't believe it because they didn't have an intellectual framework in which it could make sense. Um, they thought at the time that because, uh, because the body is made of a large number of proteins, all of which have very different structures, that only something like a protein 
with structural complexity could be the genetic material. No one had ever thought about the idea that the genetic material might be information, that you interpreted the information to make the body. And so the, the observation in 1944, uh, which never was awarded a Nobel Prize and is one of the most significant observations of the century, uh, was really um, not understood, not appreciated, not accepted. And when Watson and Crick came along in 53 with a model for DNA, which made sense of it, then everything fell into place. And so what science is a human endeavor. And logically speaking, when those data came out in 44, everybody should have said DNA is a genetic material. We have to understand how it works. Instead of which they said the results have got to be wrong because we don't understand how it works. Uh Um, You know, this happens in science quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Um, and and also things uh, change, and, and um, we may take the, some of this now, and then the other side of the break. But but some things, the way you look at things changes too. And I guess that's something in in the field of uh, epigenetics, right? I mean, you, you talk about that in, in your <laughs> chapter on some landmarks. So, so yes. explain a little bit about what that's about. Okay, so we believe, or science believes that you have, basically, you are made up from your genetic information. Mm -hmm. And that genetic information is passed from parent to child, and it is not influenced by the environment. Um, So Lamarck, back in a long time ago, really, argued that the environment could cause genes to change, and that this could be a means for evolution. And that I mean, this was responsible when when Stalin adopted um, Lysenko and Lamarckian policies, you know, the mass starvation of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union in the 1940s. Um, and so the notion that the environment can influence heredity has been an act of heresy ever since. So epigenetics is the science of showing that you can modify the structure of DNA uh, by sticking, actually by sticking chemically something else on it that affects its properties. And that's part of the means by which uh, you control how genes work. And the big controversy is, can those modifications be inherited by the next generation? And that's the whole epigenetics controversy of today. Um, If those changes could be inherited by the next generation, then it would be possible for the environment to influence heredity. I have to say, in my view, the evidence is certainly not there at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure it is ever going to be there. There are um, all sorts of tantalizing bits and pieces, but there's nothing that really stands up. The, the problem is that epigenetics has become, as it were, a doctrine in itself. Mm. And so all sorts, of, all sorts of work that don't really have very much to do with epigenetics are interpreted as being epigenetic effects because it's fashionable. I see. Well, and you know, science has its fashions. Right. And once you have a fashion like epigenetics, people flood into it. Um, there's also, also, I'm afraid, a sense in which hot topics attract inferior work. You know, when the AIDS epidemic hit, when the COVID epidemic hit, lots of people went in to producing really poor science because it was easy to get money. It was easy to get publicity. Um, this is the sort of I don't know the dark side of science, if you like, that that it's not always as objective as it should be, and that when there is um, some subject which has either very fashionable intellectually or very 
um, serious implications for people. Um, you, you get a flood. You get a flood of work going into it, which may not be of the highest caliber. Right. Okay. Good. Well, we're going to just uh, stop at that point. We'll, we'll continue on this long, on the along this line. But when uh, we will another take another short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking uh, much more in our last segment with author and microbiologist Ben Lewin. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now, she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for the Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Dr. Ben Lewin, the author of Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. He was also the founding editor of Cell, the world's leading journal in biology. Before the break, we were talking quite a bit about Ben's um, uh, recently published book. On this last segment, I wanted to actually take a little bit of a shift and talk about another one of his um, uh, interests, strong interests, uh, which also keeps, you know, is part of what I'd like in terms of my show, 45 Forward, which is that people have different interests and they move forward in, in different parts of life. Um, so one of the things is that Ben is also a master of wine. And um, he's published widely on the subject. And, and, and interestingly, and for me at least, a parallel to your work in science where you, you're not a producer of wine, but you're kind of a critic of wine. So, <laughs> so talk about this a little bit. I don't want to grow grapes because I have a black thumb. <laughs> but I don't want <laughs> to make wine. But I, I do find it very interesting. Um, wine for me is a great challenge because you never completely understand it. 
the moment you feel you've actually got a real handle on some aspect of wine, you know, you really understand something, another wine comes along that says, oh, no, you don't. Hmm. That's why it's so great. It really is a challenge. Um, I approach wine pretty much like I approach science. I look at data, um, and I try not to get carried away by, by, by emotions or subjective things. Um, and I find it very interesting. I've written a series of, 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 of books taking a scientific approach to wine. But for me, the interesting thing is at the end of the day, you do not make great wine by science. You know, what science has done for wine mm. is it's a pretty much eliminated bad wine. So mm. the flaws that we used to get in winemaking no longer occur. You can fix them, you know, before before the wine turns bad. Um, we understand ever so much more technically about making wine, but great wine is made by people who have an instinct. Mm. In that respect, it's different from science. You can't make it on the numbers. One wine producer in Napa Valley said to me when I visited him, he said, we hire graduates from the wine program at the University of California at Davis, and the first thing we do is unteach them what they've mm. learned. You know, they have, you have to go on your instincts. The, the, the science is really useful to avoid making silly mistakes, but you don't make the great wine um, on the numbers. Mm. Interesting. Um so how, how has this changed your perspective on your life and how has it changed your life in, you know, in terms of what you do and how you live? I look at things through, through, through the prism of wine now. Huh? So, so I may very well say of a piece of music, you know, if that was a bot, if that was a wine, I would say it has precision. Huh. Um, I, I think of other, other things uh, like art and music in terms of, of, of the way I have learned to analyze wine. You look at a wine, you say, is it, is it precise or is it broad? Um, and I now look at music and art in very much the same way. It's, it's made a change in my general attitude to things, I think. Mm. Well, it seems to me there's a little bit of that in, with respect to you looking at science. Not that it changes your basic uh, approach to science, but that it, that there is this element of instinct in science, I think, right? And that, that you know, that, that does play into... Um, I, I think good science. I mean, you don't you don't publish based on instinct, but I think there there are certain instincts oh, yes. about it. So when you when you do a piece of research, all the data you get will never be completely consistent. Mm -hmm. And it's a fine line when you have something that is not consistent, whether you say, I'm going to leave that out because it's an outlier and it's not consistent. Or whether you say that invalidates the hypothesis, mm. and you know the instinct of which is the right way to go is probably one of the differences between a great scientist and an ordinary scientist. Um, and that that borderline can be pretty fraught. You know, there's a point at which you go over it, and it's fraudulent because you have you have left out something really significant, which would invalidate your conclusions. Um, many great scientists have fudged their results to get to the conclusion they wanted. You know, Newton fudged his results a bit to get to gravity. Hmm. Newton was right, so, so nobody accuses Newton of fraud. Uh, some people have fudged their results and been wrong. Then they're in big trouble. Right. Uh, yes, instinct, instinct is pretty important there. Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, well, well, so what is, now I know what, what has been the response to this book, and I know that you're working on another book. We'll talk about that in a minute. But so far, uh, what, what have been people's response to your book? Well, generally good, but you know, scientists are really involved in doing science. Mm -hmm. They're not really very interested in 
why science works or how it works. They just it's it's like a fish is in water. The fish doesn't pay much attention to the water. It's just in it. Mm-hmm. The scientists are in science. So I think mm-hmm. for most scientists, a book explaining how science works is not terribly interesting. They know yes. how it works. They do it every day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. The the um the, the physicist, the Nobel Prize winning physicist Feynman said mm. something which really speaks to this. He said, ornithology is as much use to birds as philosophy is to science. And that was his attitude. You know, the theory is irrelevant. It's the practice. It's, it's doing the stuff that counts. Right, right. So but now you're, you're um, moving forward to, now you're going, uh, you're writing a, another book. So tell us about this book. So it's called The Ascent of Science. And it takes the position that science is now the dominant intellectual activity in society. And that is true whether you believe in it or whether you are um, someone who is opposed to science. I mean, there are plenty of people who are opposed to science from within the intellectual community who believe that it's it's just another value system. It's no different from anything else. And there are people, of course, like anti-vaxxers who are against science on, I suppose, what you might call political or religious reasons. And what I try to do in the book is to explain why science has become dominant, why it is successful, how it is different from other intellectual activities, um, what the distinction is between science and the humanities, and um, hopefully to dispel some superstition and misunderstanding of science. Mm. You know, there's an awful lot of superstition still around, which shouldn't shouldn't be there. Um, And there's a lot of uh, the level of, of of science education, I was going to say in this country, but in fact worldwide, really, is abysmal. Mm. I, I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that one book could have a big impact on that. But at least we can sort of try to, you know, set the record straight. This is what science is. This is this is why it has accomplished things, and this is why, intellectually speaking, it's important. Yeah, I think that is a big problem, though. I I, I know that there are certain um, you know movements now in terms of STEM education, you know, the sciences, technology, um, educate mathematics, um, engineering, mathematics, and and yet, you know, I I think we still are 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 siloing this too much. You know, we don't make an effort to say that this is an integral part of your education. And I think we we do sort of decide either you're a science guy or a humanities person, you know. Yeah. And I think that's wrong. Well, where I'm coming from, really, is that you can't expect someone who's not a scientist to understand the details of science. Mm-hmm. But you can try to explain the scientific method, how science works, so that people can come to grips with scientific phenomena um, by sort of saying, yeah, all right, this is the general procedure by which you get there, you know. The National Science Board does a survey of the opinions of the public on scientific matters every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the results are quite horrifying. I mean, just one statistic, 20% of the population believe that the sun goes around the earth and not the other way around. Now, I thought we had dispelled with that idea in the 16th century. 500 or 700 years later, there are still people who don't know. And this is just, it's really worrying. <laughs> how, how can we expect to have a functioning democracy if people don't understand the basic things about the science and technology that keeps it running? Hmm. Now, in the course of uh, your past book and your research and your 
upcoming book. Have there been any uh, surprises or things you really didn't expect to to uncover or to? Well, I didn't expect to uncover quite such a degree of hostility in the humanities towards the sciences. Hmm. Um, there's always been a clash of attitudes, but it seems, if anything, to be getting deeper. Um, I would have expected that people growing up in modern society would accept that science is a legitimate intellectual discipline, for example. I wouldn't expect them to question whether science exists or should exist. And there is, to my mind, more of a movement, both intellectually from within the humanities and politically and religiously from people who just don't accept the notion of science at all. That has been a big surprise. I mean, I knew this phenomenon was there, but I didn't know it was so deep and wide. Yeah, it's troubling. And it's, it, I think some of it comes from fear. They don't, they fear that the loss of control, that science is controlling you. Um, but I think it, it does come from what you said is that there's just a lack of educational, you know, some basically understanding about how this works. Yes. So I think that is a challenge. I think some part of it comes from the fact that people don't understand how science works, so they feel threatened by it. Hmm. And my hope is that if we could educate people on how science functions better, even if they don't understand the details, they won't feel threatened by it, and right. therefore they won't react against it in this sort of knee-jerk way. Right. You know, yeah. um, at the risk of getting myself into hot water, homeopathy is a prime example. So homeopathic medicine relies on the principle of of multiple, multiple dilutions of whatever you're treating the patient with. In fact, the solutions have been diluted to the point where there is no active ingredient less they consist only of water. And it's terrifying that people should believe that that could do them any good. Basically, it's water. Mm. And any sort of scientific look at the procedure says to you, this is nonsense. But it's wide. It's well widely accepted. It's maybe too strong, but it is certainly certainly has a surprising place in today's technological society. And that's for me is just one of the signs that there's something badly wrong here. Yeah. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, but we'll have to save that for another show when your your other book comes out. So I just wanted to thank you very much for a, a t- terrific conversation. Uh, if you if you missed a conversation with it with Ben today, uh, you can listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Uh, look for my show, 45 Forward. You can also find it on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Heart Radio, or go to my website, robowellresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab. Um, if you have questions, uh, Ben, how, how can people reach you, Ben? Please? Oh, so um, my publisher, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, has a website, of course. Okay. And I have a website called winespecific.com. Okay. I have a blog, and I muse about wine and stuff. Not actually science, but wine. Okay, good. Oh, well, folks, uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with master crossword puzzle designer and solver, Michelle Arnaud, who does a, a, a lot of work with crosswords, written many books, and that's a pastime that many of us still enjoy as we age, and uh, uh, well, younger and older. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
We wish you a great week.